Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. My name is Mabel Romero, Associate Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And this is the first of a series of three very special Ipsy Dixit episodes produced in partnership with the University of Chicago Law Review Online and the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University. This symposium of essays that I discuss with all of our participants over the next three episodes was organized by the Academy for Justice. The contributors include leaders of criminal justice and health law centers and scholars of criminal legal systems whose pieces discuss the intersection of criminal justice and the COVID-19 pandemic. The pieces are hosted by the University of Chicago Law Review Online, so go check them out. We've got amazing work from Sharon Dolovich, Valina Beattie, Brandon Garrett with Denise Araterk and William Crozier, Pam Metzger with Gregory Guggenmos, Barry Friedman with Robin Tolan, Jennifer Oliva, and yours truly so. It's quite the lineup. In this part one, devoted to COVID and carceral institutions, I chat with Sharon Dolovich about her piece, Mass Incarceration, Meet COVID-19, and Valina Beattie about her piece, Pretrial Dismissal in the Interest of Justice, a response to COVID-19 and protest arrests. Dolovich is professor of law at UCLA and the founding director of the UCLA Prison Law and Policy Program, which is just entering its seventh year. She also spearheads the UCLA Law COVID-19 Behind Bars Data Project. Professor Beattie is professor of law at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law and the deputy director of the Academy for Justice, a criminal justice center connecting research with policy reform. Part two, featuring Jennifer Oliva and Barry Friedman discussing policing, enforcement, and surveillance during the pandemic, will be released tomorrow, December 18th, and part three, featuring William Crozier, Denise Araterk, Pam Metzger, and Gregory Guggenmos discussing COVID and the courts on December 19th. I hope you all enjoy. So Sharon, I'm really excited to talk with you about um, your really amazing essay, Mass Incarceration, Meet COVID-19. And I think we all are pretty familiar with the measures we're supposed to be taking to slow the spread of the pandemic currently. And, you know, these are things like social distancing, washing our hands frequently, using masks and everything. And these seem to sort of fly in the face of everything that I know about how jails and prisons work and how they're generally operated um, in this country. Um, So could you tell us a little bit more about how, you know, jails and prisons, at least the ones that you've been studying, um, have been responding to the pandemic and really the toll that's taking on people who are incarcerated in them right now? Yeah, so there's two questions there. What are prison and jail officials doing to spread the stem the spread of the virus? And how is it affecting how is it affecting people who are experiencing it on the ground? So as to the first, there's really two sets of responses that we have seen. Um, the first set is really about changing conditions inside to try to um, reduce viral spread. And there's been a bunch of things that you might expect. There's been attempts to distribute soap and hand sanitizer. There's been some attempts to implement social distancing, which has failed for reasons I can talk about. Um, There has been uh, a lot of changes in policies, efforts to quarantine people who have symptoms, some testing, uh, some checking of staff as they come in the door. Um, Everything is really kind of sporadic in a way because prisons are complicated and messy institutions. And so you can have a really um, impressive and comprehensive set of policies on paper but it's another thing altogether when you're thinking about whether the policies are actually being implemented. So if you look on paper, it seems like there's a lot of um, things that make a lot of sense. In practice, what we understand is that the gap between stated policy and practice is really quite large. Um, So, you know, in my view, these are things that we need to do. We need to quarantine, we need to test. Um, 
need to try to spread people out as much as possible so they can socially distance. But none of that will work unless the second set of possible fixes is undertaken, and that has to do with releases. So really what I and a lot of people have been saying since the beginning of the pandemic is that unless you reduce the population density of jails and prisons enough to let the people who remain inside socially distance, uh, then you are really not going to be able to do anything to meaningfully stem the spread. And that message seems to have gotten through to public officials right out of the gate. So starting in mid-March, we started seeing around the country efforts on the part of a wide range of public officials actually uh, geared towards reducing the incarcerated population. So on the jail side, we saw corrections, you know, administrators, uh, sheriffs uh, releasing everybody that they could in their own, under their own authority. Some of it was cutting the length of sentence for people who were serving short time. Some of it was letting people out um, on pretrial detention on their own recognizance. You also saw law enforcement reducing the numbers of people that they were bringing into jail, you know, citing people rather than arresting them, for example, if the, if the um, charges or the, the crimes that they were thought to have committed were quite minor. So on that end, on the jail side, you actually saw pretty appreciable reductions. I think the median drop by mid-May was 31% of the national jail population, um, median jail population. Um, on the prison side, there were also efforts to decarcerate, but there were fewer opportunities because we're talking about people who've committed felonies and um, the politics are just much more, um, I would say, punitive. And it's much more difficult for people, even people with authority like legislators and governors uh, who can release people um, based on, let's say, a state of emergency. It was much, people in those positions seem to think it was much, um, they had much less license. And so there's many fewer uh, reductions. So um, what we saw was about an 8% drop, and that also has already started to climb as well. The jail and prison population have started to climb back up since about mid-May. So things were quite intense for the first couple of months, and then they, um, and then they started um, going back up to where, not quite where they were, but close. Um, and I know I've gone on for some time, uh, but I would just say about the people who are living in custody, as you might imagine, people are really traumatized. You're talking about people on lockdown. They don't have anything to do. They can't, um, you know, they can't go outside in many instances because there's very little movement. In a lot of cases, people are still living in very crowded dorms, you know, people surrounded by other people. They can't socially distance. And what I understand is that people are, the thing people are afraid of the most inside is getting COVID and not being treated because medical care in prisons and jails is so generally terrible. Um, there's a lot more to say, but I, I know I've gone on for some time, so I'll stop there. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And I, I really appreciate you hitting on, you know, a number of points, especially, you know, that end point talking about how, you know, folks who are currently incarcerated are really scared uh, about this situation that, you know, there isn't good health care in prisons or in jails. And I think sometimes people don't really understand the fact that, um, you know, jails and prisons are also actually rather porous, that this, these, uh, these issues don't necessarily only affect the folks who are being incarcerated, uh, but, you know, other people who might have connections to these places. So could you explain you know, because even recently I saw a map showing, okay, where is COVID spiking? And it seems to oftentimes be clustered around prisons and jails. Why right. is that? Yeah, so I will say, I think roughly 90% of the top 100 hotspots in the country are jails and prisons, which are it's unsurprising because this is the ultimate congregate setting. You know, you have hundreds and sometimes thousands of people crowded together uh, in facilities that are not designed for um, indoor outdoor egress. They have poor ventilation. They're not very sanitary. Uh, and of course, they're crowded. 
Um, but the other thing about them is it is impossible. It's not just impossible to socially distance inside a prison or jail because of the um, crowded nature. Even if facilities that are not officially overcrowded, they're not just not designed for people to have a lot of personal space. Um, but the other thing is you cannot um, lock down a prison and prevent movement you know, among different groups of people because even if you keep the incarcerated people locked in their cells and dorms, you still have to have staff moving through the facility every day, delivering food and medicine and medical care and mental health care. And so what you have is, you know, you have staff who come into the facility every day from the community. So they might be bringing the virus with them and then they move through the facility, spreading the virus. Um, or the other possibility is that they come in without the virus and they move through a facility where, you know, we have, um, you know, the data is spotty only because a lot of facilities are not testing. But, you know, the, the facilities that have done mass testing often find uh, viral uh, proliferation that is just like 50, 60, 70 percent of a facility. And so it's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very likely that a staff member even who doesn't have the virus could move through the facility in a, in a given day, pick up the virus from somebody and then take it back out into the community. And so, you know, then you have them leaving the facility, then they stop by the 7-Eleven and get a, some food. And then maybe they I don't know, they go and do some errands and then they go home, maybe they pick up their kids, you know, so um, there's just, so, they, they go back into the community and they live there however they're living their lives. And so um, it's just not surprising that you see viral spread proliferating in, uh, in facilities and then around, you know, in the surrounding communities. And I should say, you know, that um, there's a really kind of us versus them um, adversarial relationship between uh, corrections staff and incarcerated people, both inside facilities and sort of in the general political discourse. Um, we don't tend to think of corrections officers as being allies of incarcerated people. Um, a lot of us have been saying for a long time that the conditions inside prisons and jails deeply affect uh, people who work there as well as the people who live there. Um, this seems to me like a, a moment where that kind of sympathetic alliance could really, um, could really flower if there was some sort of leadership, I think, promoting the idea because, you know, these are people, staff also have outsized infection rates right now and disproportionate likelihood of death. And that's because they're living, in, they're working in dangerous places. So it, it seems like there've been efforts, at least from what you've been speaking to, to collect data, tracking COVID spread and, out, you know, different sorts of health outcomes in jails and prisons. Um, has there been any sort of has there been a lot of transparency though with this data or has it gotten better or worse over time? What's happened with it? Yeah, so um, there is a real problem with data transparency in this context. Now I will say that every prison system in the country has a dashboard on their websites where they post some data. Typically um, you'll see infection rates among uh, incarcerated people and numbers of deaths. You may have staff infection rates and deaths. You may have testing data. There are other um, you know, number of people in quarantine, number of people recovered. Um, so there is some data, but there are a few things to say about it. One is it's, it's um, uh, we don't see this at, at all on the jail side. So most jails, you know, there are 3,200 jails in the country. Most jails are not posting their data and we don't even know if they're tracking what's happening inside the jails. And on the prison side, even those systems that are transparent in terms of the data that they have collected themselves, um, are not giving us the full picture because we know um, that there are many facilities that are not doing wide testing. And so if you're, you know, I, I said in the essay, probably about, um, you know, something like 25% or 20% of facilities right now around the country out of the 5,000 we have 
are posting zero um, are posting zero cases. And we just know that nine months into the pandemic, it's just not possible to think that you have a congregate setting where all there are, as I said, all this movement and you have no people who are um, COVID positive. And that just tells us that they're not testing. And I should say that, you know, there's that number um, that, are, that are posting zero cases, but then there's another big set of prisons and jails, if they're posting at all, are posting under, under 10 cases. And so um, what that tells us is we don't really know what's going on inside uh, the facilities uh, because we're just, they're just not wanting to find out themselves. Uh, the reason, by the way, is that um, in many facilities, they're only testing people who are overtly symptomatic if they're testing at all. And what we know about asymptomatic carriers is that you're likely to have a huge number of people who are positive but not symptomatic. And on the deaths side, also I will say, even those systems that are posting COVID deaths, we believe are under-reporting the number of deaths because the systems have an interest in labeling. I mean, people die in prison all the time, every year, even not in a pandemic. And um, you know, if you're a prison that doesn't want to create the impression that you are failing at your job of keeping people safe in custody, it's sort of you know from COVID, it's sort of in your interests to undercount the number of people who are dying of COVID. And so you know, we have plenty of reports of people who are dying in prisons who have all the signs of COVID. They were fine, then they got terrible respiratory distress and then they died. And um, what's happening in most prisons uh, that we know of is that if they don't have a positive COVID test result before the person dies, they're not counted as a COVID death. And you know that just, that just um, it, it, it's not plausible. So I think we have a real problem on the transparency side. And one of the things I say in the essay is that um, there is this odd, I mean, maybe not so odd, it's been constructed over a century, but there is a strong cultural sense among corrections officials that their information about what happens inside is theirs and it's proprietary and they will release it as and when they see fit. And actually what they're forgetting is that these are public institutions, they are public servants, they're supposed to be working in the public interest. And right now it is very much in the public interest that we know exactly what is happening with COVID uh, on the ground in their facilities. And as I say in the piece, uh, it shouldn't just be that public servants running the prisons should not be trying to keep the information out, but they should be the ones actively trying to disseminate it so that every stakeholder should know what's going on inside so we can make informed decisions. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, thinking about what folks who are doing, you know, in these institutions who are incarcerated, honestly living in fear because of this virus, um, I thought that'd be really great to um, bring in discussion about Valina's essay with regard to pretrial dismissal in the interest of justice. And, you know, this is incredibly, of course, this whole series, but especially this essay I find, found so timely in, you know, discussing this sort of concept that I think maybe a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with historically. And it looks like, for, at least according to your essay, you know, I was reading this morning, 14 states and Puerto Rico recognize this judicial power to dismiss a case, not on the merits, but in the interest of justice. So can you tell us more, Felina, about this power just historically and how it's been used in the past? Absolutely. Thank you, Maybelle. Um, so it's an equitable remedy. Dismissal in the interest of justice is an equitable remedy. So when we think back to common law and early legal scholars and moral philosophers, uh, equity was created as a correction to when the rule of law is too strict and leads to an unjust result. So equity is supposed to be a complement to the rule of law. Uh, it's not about whether someone violated a law or not. It's truly about whether it's just to prosecute this person. 
And we're seeing a resurgence in equitable remedies right now, uh, whether it is unjust to have a strict interpretation of a series of laws. Uh, and particularly after everything we heard Sharon saying, we're in this national pandemic. Uh, as she said, 90% of the 100 hot spots are prisons and jails. Uh, and a sentence, any sentence in jail or prison can lead to death. Uh, and that is unjust. Uh, courts should be considering dismissing these cases equitably in the interest of justice. So could you tell us about some of the efforts that have been ongoing since March, you know, with, with some of the litigation where folks have been trying to make this argument? How have those fared so far? So generally the focus has been on bail and on uh individuals being released on bail. Uh, however, I foresee there being a problem further down the road when these courts do ultimately fully reopen. And there's an onslaught of these cases, uh, particularly as we also know that prosecutors are um, delaying filing cases, for example, and anticipating filing when courts are reopened, uh, which means there's going to be an onslaught of cases. And we're going to see this pressure to plead guilty uh, jumped into high gear. Uh, but I want to touch on that pressure to plead guilty right now, um, because I know that um, Pam, I know Brandon have both talked about virtual courts and this pressure on defendants that they can't have a trial right now. They can't get an in-person trial. They can't have a jury there. So instead, there's this pressure for them to plead guilty because otherwise they're waiting, incarcerated, potentially for up to a year, just to exercise their right to a trial. Uh, so with this inordinate pressure, I really think that instead the answer can be dismissal in the interest of justice and turning to judges to dismiss these charges, particularly low-level charges. Now, there have been a number of people, you know, a large number of people who've actually been arrested, even sent to jail um, as a result of participating in some of the protests that we've seen over the summer, um, you know, especially in support of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and you know, racial and equity and racial justice. Um, so how could you envision this concept of using pretrial dismissal in the interest of justice? Um, how would you envision that being helpful to those folks then? Well, it actually historically has been used to dismiss charges against protesters to protect principles of free speech. So we've seen this power to dismiss in the interest of justice used in health crises. Uh, for example, the um, AIDS pandemic, if we're looking at a prior health crisis where defendants who had AIDS were able to have their charges dismissed by a court uh, because of the onslaught of the pandemic. Um, but we also saw in that same health crisis charges being dismissed against people who were protesting in the AIDS crisis. So at the height of the AIDS crisis, there was this organization, ACT UP, uh, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And these protesters did die-ins. Uh, they behaved in many ways that we see replicated again in the summer of 2020 in protesting police violence. And these die-ins that ACT UP did were to protest the deaths 
of LGBTQ people, however, not at the hands of police, but instead because of AIDS and the lack of funding for AIDS research, uh, the lack of impetus to create a vaccine. Uh, they protested the FDA and they actually protested the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which was directed then as now by Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who's the leader of our White House Task Force uh, response to COVID-19. So there's a lot of intersections here between uh, protests and protests in a time of health crisis. Uh, and we see that intersection happening right now. This summer, thousands of people were arrested for protesting. And while thousands more protested all across the spectrum, the majority of people who we saw arrested were protesting against racism and against police violence. Uh, and a number of these arrests, uh, failure to disperse, uh, for example, um, disorderly conduct, could not be factually or legally substantiated. These are a prime opportunity for prosecutors to step in and dismiss these charges, as we saw the prosecutor for the city of Denver do, uh, who said, we're dismissing these 300 charges because they're unsubstantiated um, and they're not in the interest of the public. Uh, it's also, though, when prosecutors aren't doing that, an opportunity for judges to step in, look to the public interest and dismiss these low level charges in the interest of justice. Some of the states with the most protests this summer have the, the courts there have the right to dismiss cases in the interest of justice. So Minnesota, mm -hmm. California, Oregon, Washington State, New York, the judges in all of those states have the capacity to dismiss cases in the interest of justice. And I think it's particularly applicable to these protests and these protests during this health crisis. So these 14 states in Puerto Rico who have this right in particular, is it usually statutory or, you know, is it a state constitutional right? And why do we only see this limited, you think, to these 14 states in Puerto Rico historically? So it derives from the common law. There are some constitutions that have enshrined it. Uh, it's not turned to frequently, but when it is turned to, again, it's it's in the midst of crises like we have right now. Uh, and I did have a quote I wanted to read from a dismissal at the height of the AIDS epidemic by a judge uh, in New York City. Uh, and his opinion dismissing a charge uh, was, quote, dismissals may also be granted even where the evidence of guilt against the defendant is unquestioned. Our city hospitals, in large part, are being consumed in battling this plague. So it sounds like we've got this potential tool that it either seems like it's just underutilized or people just don't know enough about it. So I'm hoping that even being able to discuss this, we could bring it to many more people's attention that way. So this is really exciting. So thank you so much for writing about this. Um, where do you think might be, you know, the most logical place to start otherwise um, in trying to get more people familiar with this or um, getting more judges on board um, with doing this and a bit more comfortable because they might feel like they're being activists or they might feel like they're taking too um, outspoken of a role doing this. And, you know, I could see why they might be cautious. 
Right. And thus far, we really have relied on prosecutors uh, to um, remedy the situation of over-incarceration or of people who are incarcerated during the pandemic. And prosecutors so far have failed to lead us out of over-incarceration, even in the midst of the coronavirus. Uh, So prosecutors have the authority to issue large-scale remedies to advocate for the release of incarcerated people pretrial in jail, and they have frequently failed to do so. Uh, So for judges, judges have this capacity, um, both in the interest of justice, it is in the interest of justice, um, and whether it's unjust, but also as a way to control their dockets. And as we see, as I mentioned, so many more cases that are going to be onslaughting the criminal justice system and putting uh, levers of pressure on defendants to plead guilty uh, and on courts to try to move quickly through these cases. The court has the discretion and power to dismiss in the interest of justice in order to prioritize their docket. So courts instead could be prioritizing um, violent offenses, for example, higher level offenses, felonies instead of misdemeanors. When we see dismissal in the interest of justice, it's generally for misdemeanor offenses. Um, so that's that's one example. But another is the courts can use this to maintain public confidence in the administration of justice. And we know that that is at a turning point of really being questioned in a number of ways nationally. And this is an opportunity for courts to reinstate that they are jurisdictions uh, to to provide justice um, and that there should be confidence in their administration of justice. And perhaps there can't be that same confidence in the administration of justice when all of these cases are just coming as an onslaught once the courts reopen. And I think that's so true that there's this sort of crisis of confidence in, you know, the our public institutions, especially um, when it comes to even competence in handling the pandemic. So I think that this is a really um, fascinating way of trying to figure out how do we actually get this under control? How do we re, you know, win back some of that trust and confidence? Um, I'm wondering, um, Sharon, what do, what do you think with regard to maybe some of Valina's suggestions with regard to how to go about using pretrial dismissal in the interest of justice? I know that to some extent you, you wrote a little bit about in your essay, um, some of the some of the litigation that some um, incarcerated people have been taking on and moving forward with, um, have they been using this concept in the in their litigation and arguing for this? Yeah, well, the litigation that we're seeing is on the prison side largely. I mean, there's 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 jail conditions cases um, and uh, um, and also you know prison conditions cases. Um, most of the um, most of the litigation that we're seeing is about trying to identify people who are currently in custody and getting them out. So, to, so I, I, what I hear Valina talking about is kind of an amazing potential tool that could be used on the front end before people are even, you know, as a way to keep people out of the facilities that advocates are now trying to get them released from. So we haven't really, you know, the, the court cases that, that I was writing about that we've seen aren't really um, designed to try to get judges to use this um, remarkable equitable power on, on the front end. But what I'm hearing from Valina is, you know, we've got a system that, yes, in response to the pandemic, but a system that itself has created this crisis in the courts. And so what I hear is, you know, Valina is really describing a a safety valve that we can use to make sure that people are going to get a fair trial and that is going to allow judges who have 
power to keep people out of carceral facilities, um, you know, enlist judges in making sure that we don't exacerbate the problem of crowding. That you know, it's come up again. It's you, it's nobody's fault. It's a pandemic. But um, really, what we need is a kind of all hands on deck approach. And so what I'm hearing is that judges actually could play an even bigger role than you know many of us had realized before in um, making judgments about what is just and fair and humane that um, will you know require them to go outside their usual channels, but could actually make a real positive difference. are empty The bars and cafes tuned The street lights only changing Cause they ain't got nothing better to do You say it's like Christmas When nobody's around when our city was still a secret Before those carpetbaggers came to town The airports and train stations Were full of desperate people Trying to convince the gate agents That not all emergencies are equal no one is going anywhere soon and Inside the Safeway It's like the Eastern Block People have a way of getting crazy when they think they'll be dead in a month But you like the silence Of the wind through the trees And I like walking beside you Through these days of no guarantees And National Guard is on their way Protect us from our neighbors And everyone who's tried to swim for it Is drowned out past the breakers The airports and train stations Are full of desperate people No one is going anywhere soon going anywhere